Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Good to be back with you. Uh, you know, every marriage requires and benefits from opportunities to get away and uh, reconnect and um, and you know have have a date and have some fun, right? Uh, everybody needs that, and so that's what Karen and I were doing last weekend. In case you're curious, we went and checked into a hotel uh, together for the weekend and left the boys at home and uh, went to go uh, be husband and wife for a while. And that is a good thing. And if you all are married and it's been a while since you had a date or got away for the weekend, uh, let me just give you your pastoral permission slip to go and do that, okay? Because it is worth doing and it is important. Um, Karen and I are in transition years, what we call these, you know, a year when one more of the baby birds is going to leave the nest. And so in those years, it's especially, I think, important for us to, to get away and have some fun together. And so thank you for the opportunity to, to get away and to do that. Um, I know Josh did a great job with the, the, the scripture last week. I wanted to talk to you about a couple things uh, before... We get into our time in God's Word. First of all, uh, the Wild Game Feast is coming up. We've got a stack of these outside the door, okay? Uh, I encourage you to pick up however many you will give out to your friends and family and so forth. We mailed a bunch of them out um, uh, just the other day to all of our previous attendees that we have contact information for. Uh, They would have got one in the mail um, maybe yesterday or um, Monday or Tuesday of this week. Uh, But anyway, take one of those uh, with you and uh, talk to folks about the Wild Game Feast. Also, I've got a big snack of tickets available if anybody wants uh, one or ten or however many. Um, And uh, they're 20 bucks a piece. If, If you would really like to come, though, I say this in all seriousness, if you would really like to come and you go, you know, 20 bucks is a hardship for me at this point in my life, uh, can I still come? The answer to that question is yes. My only requirement is if I give you a ticket that you do show up, <laughs> right? Um, because we do have limited seating and we want to en- enable everybody who wants to actually be there to be there. So, um, But we don't want the, the, the money to be the, the, uh, the primary deal. So if you would like to come, uh, and it's open to everybody, men, women, kids, whoever, we all have a good time. We give away a whole bunch of stuff. Um, one of the things we're giving away this year is an African safari, uh, believe it or not. And um, you can go and do that. Um, the folks who did that the last time are going to be there this year with the trophies they collected, and that's going to be a, a neat thing. Uh, but we'll eat, we'll have dessert, we'll have uh, all kinds of uh, fun stuff to eat, and that'll be a good time. Um, but before that, so this month, Men's Night Out is at my house. And if you are 18 years old or older, we would like to have you at my house Um We'll, we'll have a, a, just a men's night gathering. Uh, I'm going to put some, some uh, pork butts on the smoker, and I need to know how many to put on there. Um, and so if you would give me a heads up that you're coming so that I can estimate appropriately the amount of pork that a bunch of men will eat. Um, <laughs> and Marty Davis is going to help me out with that. 
and uh, we're we're going to have a fun time that evening, just hanging out, and um, I'll probably have a fireplace going, and uh, we'll eat uh, smoked meat, and uh, and hang out together, have some fun, uh, and it is it. But the other thing is, you need to bring a dish to pass. So we've already got Rick Rosetto um, committed. He doesn't know this yet, but he's committed to not only come, but to bring Cindy's uh, corn casserole. And uh, <laughs> But we're going to let him know after he gets back from Florida that he's committed to that. But in any case, we would love to have all of the men come and hang out with us and uh, enjoy uh, an evening of uh, smoked meat and uh, good stuff. So... Anyway, with that, let me pray, and then we'll get into God's Word together, okay? And could one of you guys turn the lights on up here? Uh, I'm half blind at my age, so I need all the light I can get. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You that You are a God of grace, a God of abundant mercy, a God who loves to have His children come to Him for any purpose, whether it be confession of our sin or even just to be with you. Father, you love to receive our worship, to receive our praise, to have us come into your presence. And Father, we pray that as we come into your presence through your word this morning, that you would be not only honored and and pleased by our presence, Father, but that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word and that you would speak clearly and strongly uh, through your word to our hearts and help us to be transformed by the encounter we have this morning with you. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to return to the book of Esther and I want to just take a do a quick recap uh, of the story so far. Esther takes place during the re- the reign of Xerxes, the king of Persia the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Within Esther, he is called King Ahasuerus, which is, uh, you don't know this, but it's a funny name, actually. It translates to King Headache. (laughs) Okay. And so there's a little bit of satire going on in the story, King Headache. And during the days when King Headache ruled, okay, um, uh, in the third year of his reign, King Headache banished his original queen because she would not come before him and display her beauty in her royal crown when he demanded that she do so. Four years later, after being defeated by the Greeks, the king organized what effectively is the ancient equivalent of the bachelor, uh, where he seized, effectively, women from across uh, the empire and brought them into his harem including a young, Jew, a young Jewish woman named Hadassah. Uh, her cousin Mordecai, as she does so, encourages her to cloak her identity as one of the Jewish descendants of King Saul. And he, she takes the name Esther. Now, Esther is the name of the Babylonian goddess of fertility and war, uh, usually known in history as Ishtar, but it's the same name. And she wins the king's favor in his bed on her night uh, to spend with the king. And uh, fast forward five years. And Haman, who is a descendant of Agag, who was king of the Amalekites during the reign of King Saul, importantly, um, 
the Amalekites are the ancient enemies of Israel. They are a people who attacked the nation of Israel. As soon as they crossed over the Red Sea, there lay the Amalekites in wait to butcher all of the weak, all of the old, and all of the sickly at the back of the column. The Amalekites fell on the innocent and the weak and the sick and the old and butchered them. And God said at that time, there will be war between your people and the Amalekites until Amalek is eliminated. They were also, by the way, descendants of Abraham, just like the people of Israel. So these are their relatives. But um, in the context of Esther, on Passover Eve, the night before Passover starts, Haman, this descendant of King Agag, decides he will throw dice. In Persia, they were called the Pur. He cast the Pur. He threw dice to find out what day he should murder all of the Israelites throughout the empire of Persia. And, and so there's this conflict set up in the book between whether God will still honor his covenant with the people of Israel or not. Because again, this is Passover Eve. What is Passover about? Passover is about celebrating the fact that God rescued his people from slavery to a foreign power. And it had happened over a thousand years previously. Is God still going to keep his covenant? Is he still going to be faithful to these people? Or is he going to allow them to be slaughtered? Total genocide is Haman's plan. That every last Jew throughout the Persian Empire, which at that time would have been all of the Jews in the world, would have been slaughtered. And Esther is faced with a choice. Will she continue to cloak her identity and blend into the court of the Persian king in hopes of saving her life? If she does that and doesn't move, to do anything, all her people may be slaughtered. But on the other hand, she could choose at long last to be publicly identified with God's people and put her own life at risk and still possibly not save her people. Because Haman is a man of influence. He is the top advisor to the king. Faced with these hard challenges, what is Esther going to do? Well, turn over, if you will, with me over to the book of Esther in chapter 5. Believe it or not, we're going to cover three chapters of this story together this morning. It'll be a modern-day miracle. None of you have ever seen me cover three chapters of the Bible in one sitting, but uh, you'll see it today. And next week, too. Um, this is what the Word of God says. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. 
Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Well, let me explain this a bit. What's the third day that's mentioned there in verse 1? Well, you find out if by looking back in chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, we read that Esther has already committed herself to go before the king and to seek his favor for herself and for the Jewish people, knowing that it may well cost her her life to do so. The king is a capricious and a wicked man. And that we need to underline that. This is a wicked man. After all, what kind of man sends forth an order that every young virgin that's pretty that he might like is to come into his presence forcibly and to spend the night with him, and the one he likes the best will be the one who becomes queen. It's a wicked man who does that. And she's got to go before this capricious and wicked man, and, and to do so at the risk of her life, even to appear before him. Remember that anyone, including the queen, who approaches the king unasked for could be put to death. And that was not an idle threat. In fact, if you, if you look in archaeology, what you can see is uh, you can see reliefs, these carvings that they make, you know, where they make pictures on the walls and so forth, and they carve a picture out of stone that's on the wall. And they have found some from the Persian Empire. And what they depict is the king sitting on his throne, and right behind him, a man with a long-handled axe. Guess what his job is? It is to put to death anyone who displeases the king in any way, including anyone who came into his presence without being asked, including the queen. This is a man who had banished his previous queen because she wouldn't appear in his presence when he wanted. You think he has any question whatsoever in his mind about putting to death even his own queen. After all, he has lots of women in the harem. But Esther is going to go. She and all the Jews in Susa plus Mordecai and all of Esther's maids have decided they're going to fast for three days. And at the end of that fast, on the third day, she's going to go before the queen. Go before the king. Um, sadly, if you look at Chapter 4, closely, there's no mention that they prayed. No mention there that they prayed. Now, do you think if you were going to go before the king at the risk of your life, you might shoot up a prayer or two? 
it would occur to me, right? Uh, but as a thought, Lord, I'm about to go do something scary. And I think the reason is that it's because they don't know the Lord all that well. These are not people who have been faithfully walking with Yahweh all this time. After all, she was very comfortable adopting the name of a Babylonian fertility goddess as her own name. And her cousin Mordecai is named after a Babylonian god of war. So I don't think they know the Lord all that well. But they, they think, well, we should at least fast. So they do that. And on the third day, she dresses in her royal robes. She goes before the king and she is safely received into his presence. That's what the bit about the golden scepter is all about. If the king extended his scepter toward you, then you could approach and then when you touched his scepter, you were safe. But if he hadn't put it out, the guy with the axe would have come out from behind the throne. And she goes before the queen, before the king, rather, and uh, she asks, he's, he's in a generous mood. He's not really offering her half the kingdom. It's just a rhetorical uh, thing like, I'll give you anything you want. Up to half the kingdom. He's not really offering that to her. But he is saying, essentially, I'm in a generous mood. So, um, so ask anything you want. And she says, well, I'd like to have you and Haman come to a feast tonight. And so she takes him to the feast. Uh, they, uh, they drink some wine. He's probably drunk. And then, because uh, the Persians never made any decisions unless they were drunk. That was part of their culture. Okay. Um, they, thought, they said, well, you've got to make the decision drunk. And then in the next day, if we, if we agree with that decision sober, it's a good one. And we're going with it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so she, she, he's drunk at the feast. He asks her, well, what's your request? And she's like, well, my request is that you come to a feast again tomorrow night. Now, you and I might think that that's odd, but this is part of Eastern culture. Right? In, Eastern, in an Eastern culture... You can only accept a gift that is offered to you after the third time that it's offered. Okay, so it would go like this. Oh, I want you to have this gift. No, 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 I, I couldn't take that. No, I want you to have this gift. No, 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 I couldn't take that. Well, I really want you to have this gift. Well, okay. Right? And so she's got to set him up for the third opportunity to make his offer, right? First one when she came before the king, second one at the first feast, third one's coming at the next feast. And that's why she tells him, well, if you come to the feast tomorrow night, then I'll give you my request. And by the way, it's a big request. And so it's really important you follow the protocol on this, right? And at this point, we are all kind of breathing a sigh of relief for a minute. But I think that what we're supposed to be seeing here is that God is sovereign over even the mightiest king on earth. Because this is not the ideal time for her to ask a favor. She has been queen by this point for five years. This is the twelfth year of his reign. She became queen in the, in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign. 
She's been queen for five years. Initially, five years before, he thought she was hot stuff. But it's been five years. And she says in chapter 4, the king has not asked for me in 30 days. So his desire for her has cooled a bit. But the king is still happy to see her. He's in a generous mood. How did that happen? I would submit to you that it happened because God is still the same. And He is unchanged. And He had made a covenant with the Jewish nation over 1,500 years prior to these events. And even though the circumstances have changed, God has not. And He will not allow His people to be utterly destroyed. And so... uh, And on top of that, he is sovereign in all places, even in the Persian Empire, which was the mightiest, most extensive empire in the world up to that time. It still ranks among the top 50 largest empires there have ever been. But God is still sovereign. Even there. Even in Persia, even in the court of the king, even in his own throne room, there is a God who rules over the king. And God is the king of kings. And he, therefore, holds the heart of every king exactly how he wants it to go. And he moves it wherever he wishes, just like Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he wishes. And so we should not be surprised by God's actions here. Instead, we should be reminded that God is still at work. And He is still at work even for people who have forgotten how to relate to Him. These are people who didn't know enough to pray. But He is still working out His salvation plan for His people through every kind of circumstance, through every kind of risk, through every kind of culture and governmental structure because He keeps His covenant with His people even when we have forgotten our covenant with Him. Amen? This is not the end of the story. Read on with me. Uh, Chapter 5, beginning verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty feet high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now Mordecai has steadfastly refused to give honor to a man who wants him and his people dead. And so Haman decides to make a particular example of Mordecai. 
And what you're, when you see the word gallows and hanging here, don't think Old West, platform, a rope, long walk and a short drop. Okay? Don't think about that as, as hanging. What you need to imagine here is a big, sharpened stick or piece of steel sticking up 150 feet high. And what they're going to do is they're going to stick Mordecai on it. Impale him like Vlad the Impaler from which we get the stories of Count Dracula. And he's going to watch him suffer impaled on that stick outside his own house. Haman's not a nice guy. Did I point that out? Do I need to point that out? Okay. That's the Persian method of execution. Is they impaled you. If they liked you, they would do it through a vital organ. If not, they'd leave you to hang there for a while. Until either through blood loss or sepsis or something else, you die. But part of their joy was in watching you die slowly. And that's his plan for Mordecai. 150 feet high in front of his own house so that he can watch Mordecai's agony and make an example of him. There's more to the story. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is, is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom should the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is, the, is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, 
if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, you may not remember this detail, but back in chapter 2, Mordecai had discovered this plot against the king back uh, just before Esther was made queen. There was no reward given, which was odd, because normally the Persians were lavish in their rewards uh, to those uh, who protected them and ruthless in dealing with traitors. But we don't read that Mordecai ever received a reward or that he ever complained about that or that anything was done beyond the fact that this incident was written in the Chronicles of the King's Reign. Now, fast forward five years, and there's one particular sleepless night. The king orders the Chronicles to be brought and read, and it's at that very moment that Haman is coming to ask to for permission to kill Mordecai on his apparatus outside his house, his gallows. At that very moment, the king has been hearing about Mordecai saving his life and that nothing was done to honor him. And at the very moment that Haman is coming to seek Mordecai's life, he says, as Haman comes in, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor most? And so he comes up with this long list of rewards because he's thinking he's going to be the recipient, right? And did you, did you read this little detail in there where it says, let, him, let one of his most noble officials dress him? By the way, that's the work of a slave. If you were a nobleman in the Persian Empire, you didn't put your own clothes on. You had, you had a valet who dressed you. That was part of the rewards of being part of the noble officials. But now you're going to take one of the most noble officials of the king and use him for the valet for this guy. So Haman thinks that he is in this tremendous position of authority and power and he's going to be treated like Mordecai's slave for the day. On the very day, he was going to get Mordecai killed. How about that? For turnabout of circumstances, right? For a giant reversal. In an Eastern culture, the loss of face that this would have entailed is massive. He comes home having spent the day as Mordecai's servant. And his wife Zeresh and his wise men prophetically say this, if Mordecai is a Jew, you will not be able to overcome him, but you will fall before him. And with that comment, we're reminded again that though God is not mentioned in this entire book, he has still made a covenant with the Jewish nation and he is still acting as their protector and he is still sovereign over all things. In case you didn't get it, this is a massive coincidence. 
that the king just so happens to have a sleepless night. He just so happened to ask for the chronicles to be read. And he just so happened to stop at the very place where Mordecai rescued him and had no reward. That's the point. That it had been five years in the interim, but God worked on both ends of this incident. He ensured that no reward was given at the beginning so the reward could be given at the end. And who? And he even worked to ensure that Mordecai's enemy would be the one to give it. How about that? Let's look at the last, one, last section of this story. I want to look at the rest of chapter 7 here. And also verse 14 of chapter 6 where we'll begin. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the kingdom. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath and went from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace gardens to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Queen Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. So here it is. Haman has spent the day honoring his enemy on the king's behalf. The last words that he hears before he goes to the banquet are words of doom. And so he is going to the banquet with fear in his heart. And little does he know how fearful his night will become. At the, the king's third offer of a gift to Esther, she reveals her Jewish identity and Haman's plot against her. And she begs for her life and the lives of the Jewish people, and the king is furious. He is absolutely furious. Because he realizes he's been had. You know, Haman had presented this whole thing to him earlier in this book as, well, there's this people who don't really honor you, and they're rebels and traitors, and we should get rid of them. And, and the king was like, yeah, let's get rid of them all. 
and then to find out what's happened, really. Threatens the life of his queen and her people. And Mordecai, the man who saved his life. These are the people you want to get rid of? He goes out to the garden to kind of, I don't know, walk it off. And he is enraged. And when he comes back, he finds Haman falling on the queen's couch where she lies and begging for his life. Now, the king misinterprets what's going on. He doesn't understand, I don't think, that, um, that he is begging for his life, not trying to have a romantic gesture here. But you have to understand that no one in the Persian Empire was supposed to come within seven feet of one of the wives of the king. And so the fact that he is up close and personal with, with her while he is in the room is just absolutely enrages him further. On top of that, remember he's just spent the day being ordered by the king to spend the day having Mordecai the Jew honored who had saved the king's life. So when you when it's revealed that your plot implicates Mordecai and that you have been plotting to kill the man who saved the king's life, what does that make you look like? That makes you look like a sympathizer with the people who tried to kill the king. And so Haman's fate is sealed and he dies at the king's order impaled on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Now that had to be an instructional moment right there, I think. My husband had this gallows built for his enemy outside our house, and there he hangs on it. Gulp, right? Um, and I say this, when God deals in justice, he, he, he likes poetic justice. Right? Where you get what you were dishing out. He reverses the actions of wicked people and he brings on their own heads the evil destiny they had planned for his people. There's more to the story, of course, but for now, I want to consider how this true story from God's Word speaks to us about God and what we learn about Him from it. The main point of this whole book, but especially of this section, is that God is sovereign over all things. And He is faithful to keep His promises to His people regardless of apparent obstacles. Regardless of apparent obstacles. Now, let me, let me be very clear that no one be confused. Sometimes when people hear about God's sovereignty, what they, what they think that that means is that we are all just puppets on a stage that only move when God pulls the strings. Uh, that is not what the Bible means by God's sovereignty, I don't think. Uh, it doesn't mean, God being sovereign doesn't mean that we have no real choices or that, um, that the choices that we make are predetermined entirely and, um, and that therefore our choices really have no moral significance. Our choices are real. 
and they are freely made, and they are and they are made consistent with our nature, either as redeemed saints of God indwelled by the Holy Spirit, or as sinners who don't know God. And so we always act consistent with one of those, right? Our choices are moral, and they have real moral consequences that are eternal. By the way, life is for keeps. But what God's sovereignty means is this wonderfully comforting truth that God is always at work. Always at work through and despite the choices that we make and the actions and choices made by other people to fulfill His good and gracious plan for His people. He is always at work through and in spite of every circumstance, every choice made by every person on earth to fulfill His good and gracious plan for His people. And so that means that He has kept and that He is keeping and He will keep all of His promises to His people just as He did here for His ancient people in this circumstance at this time. He is keeping has kept and will keep every single one of his promises to you as well. And here in these three chapters, what we see are four specific examples of God doing that very thing, of protecting and preserving his people, not based on their faithfulness to his covenant with them, with him, but based on his character and his faithfulness and his sovereign power. And thank God, amen? Because if, if God's protection and His working out of His plan for our benefit was dependent on us and our obedience, how much of it would get fulfilled? Well, in my own case, I'll just testify and say not much. Okay? We are like, we are like the little kid who says, who says to his dad, you know, Dad, I want you to hold my hand. And he's like, well, okay, just hold my hand. And he's like, no, no, you have to hold my hand. And dad looks and says, well, what's the difference? And he goes, well, I'm not as the kid looks up and says, well, I'm not very strong. And so I might not be able to hold on to you, but you're really strong and you can hold on to me much more firmly. Guess who we are in that story? We're the little kids and God has got his grip on us. And so therefore, he is going to be faithful to keep his promises. And his sovereign power is going to ensure that his promises get kept. Because there's no obstacle, there's no set of circumstances, there's no choices that people make, there's no governmental entity in existence now or in the future or in the past which has impeded in any way the fulfillment of God's good plan and gracious purpose for his people. His promises are always going to be kept based on His character, His faithfulness, His sovereign power. And so He can work through a pagan king. And this guy is one of the worst of the worst kings in history. If you want to read the history of the Persian Empire, Xerxes does not come out, come out looking like a guy you would like to have rule over you. He was a wicked man who worshipped idols, 
who was abusive to everyone in his life, who had countless numbers of them murdered because they displeased him. And God worked through that king to save his people. God can work through an evil king. God can thwart an evil plot against his people, as he did here with Haman and Mordecai. God can ensure that overdue honors get bestowed. And God can bring judgment down on the wicked. And he does. Why does all this matter to you and me? Well, our circumstances in our life right now in the United States of America are apt to be very much less dramatic than those in the book of Esther. Amen? Um, I mean, I'm not a fan of anyone up and down the line, regardless of party, in our government today. <laughs> right? Um, because why? Because we're governed by sinners. And to a greater or lesser extent, they're all wicked. Right? But God can work through that. Your choices and mine aren't obviously matters of life and death. But God is the same God He has always been. And He will always be the same God. And His covenant with you and me is just as unbreakable in fact, possibly even more so. Because it is sealed, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the triune being. God's covenant with you and with me is unbreakable. And it is not based on our performance. It is based on His character, His faithfulness, His sovereign power. And so you can trust Him to keep all of His promises to you, no matter what circumstances you are in. Maybe you got passed over for a promotion at work. Maybe you got laid off from your job. God is in that. And He is working to redeem and to work through that circumstance for your good. Maybe you've been abused and mistreated by a family member or a spouse or a child that is near and dear to your heart. Who has cut you deeper than you thought you could possibly be cut. Is God working in that? Is God working in your life despite the scars and pain that you have? Yes. Does God redeem and work through these things for your good? Yes. Can God protect you and carry you through that? Yes. Maybe you're frustrated like I am with the political culture of our, of our day. And the challenges of being a Christian in an increasingly hostile culture. And our culture is increasingly hostile to people like me and people like you. 
when they don't write us off as fundamentalists, they disparage us for holding to biblical teaching. And they seek to marginalize us in every area of life. Is that frustrating? Yes. Is that hard? Yes. Is that a bunch of fun? No. Have I lost friends because of these things? Yes. Is that painful? You bet. But is God at work in that? Yes. Is He working to redeem and to heal and to bring honor and glory to Himself and to do good for me and for you even in that? Yes. He is sovereign over all these things. And more than that, He has made His covenant of love with you and He has sealed it with the blood of His only Son so that we always know how much He loves us. And He is still at work in the world despite every challenge, despite every bad thing that might happen. Amen? Because the cross is not just the thing which testifies to us that God has dealt with sin. The cross is the thing that says that God is at work in the world bringing good out of the worst possible thing. Amen? Because what could be worse than that you put a holy, innocent man to death bearing the sins, not that he had done, but that everyone else in the entire world had ever done. What could be worse than that? And yet, on the other hand, what could be better than that? That God redeemed broken down sinners who forgot that God existed or never wanted anything to do with him in the first place and brought them through that very thing into his family. Does God at work in the world? You bet he is. Does God redeem terrible, horrible, awful, sinful brutality and evil? Yes. And Jesus Christ is himself the example of how it works. So, trust your sovereign and loving Father who works for you and is keeping all His promises to you. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are sovereign. And that more than that, in Your sovereignty, You are working all good things for us. Not that all circumstances are good, Father, but that You work them out for our good, for our glory, for, uh, for Your glory, more importantly, and for our benefit and blessing for eternity. And Father, we are mystified and confused by all these things, but Father, we love that You are a God who brings the greatest possible good from the worst most unimaginable evil to accomplish your good plan for your people. And Father, we thank you that you have shown us over and over again in examples in the Scriptures and in examples in our own lives that you are a God who does that so that we can trust you and love you even more as you love us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.